Teenagers. I'm James Schoen. And I'm James Certin. Conversation, expertise and advice on the world and well-being of our teenagers. Hello and a very warm welcome to Talking Teenagers today. And I always say this, but we really are truly lucky uh, to be speaking to Professor Russell Foster, who heads up at Oxford University the Sleep and Circadian Institute of Neuroscience. He is a true expert, and it's a real honour. So welcome, Russell. Thank you, James. It really is a great delight to see you again, and also to chat. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's great to be here. And, and it's interesting, actually, over the last um, 20 or so different podcasts that James and I have done about talking teenagers, how many people have, have referenced the importance of sleep. So, so I, I really do feel that we're very lucky, and our listeners are too, to be able to ask questions to somebody who knows so much about this. Well, it's, it's, an, it's an emerging science, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole discipline of sleep and circadian rhythms has blossomed in the past 20 years or so. Uh, so, so that, I mean, I think uh, serious neuroscientists wouldn't really have gone into this area 25 years ago. Certainly when I was going into it, it was not considered, well, it's a bit sort of a bit airy-fairy, a bit on the periphery. And now, because of some of the advances that have been made, if you really want to understand how genes and their proteins give rise to behavior, the circadian system is the best example we've got. So the science has just exploded over the past 20, 25 years. And of course, the Nobel Prize in 2017 went to the people who discovered how the molecular clock works in fruit flies, which, is, which has ended up you know, in t- telling us so much about ourselves as well. Can I, j- just keeping it, it, it fairly simple, what, why do we battle, and I suppose principally teenagers, why do they battle so much with sleep? Yeah. Um, first of all, maybe we should step back and think about why sleep is so important yeah, to okay. us as individuals. And, and in a sense, we've divided our time, as almost all life on the planet, to a period of inactivity and activity. Um, and, and that sort of maps on to the very demands of the light-dark cycle and the 24 you know, revolution of the, of the Earth. And so during the active phase, we get out there, we feed, we find mates, we do all the things that sustain life. But when we're inactive, and we call that inactive phase sleep, a whole bunch of really important stuff is going on. So, for example, the information that we've acquired during the day, we can begin to consolidate in the form of memories. But it's not just laying down information. It's actually processing information. What's turned out to be so exciting over the past few years is that we're we're actually coming up with novel solutions to complex problems whilst we sleep. We're clearing toxins from the brain. We're re-equilibrating our metabolic processes. We're essentially then preparing ourselves for the active phase. So, in fact, you could say that our our daytime activities are entirely dependent upon the quality of sleep that we get at night. So it's really, really important. But the problem is that importance and significance has, has been marginalized. We've tended to think of sleep as an indulgence, as a luxury, as, as something, you know, just for the wimps. Whereas in fact... Was it Margaret Thatcher that said that? Well, yeah, I mean, she's got a bad rap for it. And indeed, I spoke to one of Margaret Thatcher's secretaries several years ago, and it's true, you know, she used to get about four hours sleep a night. But of course, that kind of stuff has consequences. And, and of course, it can affect your empathy. It can affect your ability to process information. And actually, there's some evidence now that whilst we sleep, we clear toxins from the brain. 
And one of those particular problems is a misfolded protein called beta amyloid. And beta amyloid, of course, has been associated with the development of dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, I'm not saying that if you don't sleep, you're going to get Alzheimer's, but it's one of the things going on within the brain at night, uh, which seems to be quite important. And as I say, poor and disrupted sleep has been associated with higher rate, rates of brain amyloid, which is correlated with higher rates of dementia. So, you know, it just underlines the importance of why good sleep is essential. If I'm allowed to ask the next question, why, why do we battle with it? Why has it become such a big problem? Well, I guess there's several reasons. One is because we don't understand the importance of it. Uh, and, and, you know, it, we teach our young people about so many different aspects of their lives. W you know, good personal hygiene, sex education, all of those critical bits of information. But for 30% 30, 30 of our biology, which is sleep biology, we provide no information at all about why it's important and why it should be defended. And, 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 and you know, the extent to which good sleep makes us what we are. So I think there's a lack of education, but also I think young people are facing huge demands. Actually, much of society is facing huge demands, trying to squeeze more and more into a working day. And the first victim, of course, is sleep. And ironically, sleep is the sort of one thing that is the best cognitive enhancer we get. And so we're actually marginalizing something that could improve our ability to process information and, and indeed our emotions and our mental health status as well. So if you were, Russell, if you were sort of, um, you, know, you talk about education, if you were a teacher or a parent, what are the kind of, I don't know, top five things yep. that we need to know and, and kind of communicate about sleep to the benefit of, of young people? We, we actually developed a programme called Teen Sleep. And uh, what it was was a series of, of um, modules that we went into schools and, and did tutorials for the teachers. And the teachers then passed that information on to the pupils. And it was everything from the biology of sleep, why sleep is important, as we've sort of covered, but also how you might want to defend sleep. Um, and so it's very good to have a robust bedtime. It's very important to, to sort of... The, the slight problem is that a lot of the advice that people give is you must do this. And that never works for anybody. Um, and Especially so not you, teenagers. Well, not teenagers. And, and so, you know, there, there's people have come up to me and said, I'm not getting eight hours of sleep. Does that mean I'm going to die? And I said, well, yeah, you're going to die, but it's probably independent of the fact that you're not getting eight hours of sleep. Um, and, and I think, you know, you have to work out for yourself how much sleep you need. So, if you need an alarm clock to get you out of bed in the morning or somebody else to wake you up, if you're feeling sluggish, if you're feeling as though you need caffeinated drinks or high sugar drinks, if you crave a nap in the afternoon or on free days you oversleep hugely, this is just telling you you're not getting enough sleep. So what you need to do is try and defend a sleeping space. So before desired bedtime, you need to wind down. You need to get rid of the social media, take it out of the bedroom. You know, you need to get rid of TVs or gaming stations or whatever, turn them off, be disciplined about it. The bedroom should ideally be a place for relaxation and sleep. It's, I know it's immensely difficult because so many bedrooms are also study rooms. And it's, and it's the problem is you've got to turn off from that and wind down into the state of sleep. So transition in. I, for example, never read a scientific paper you know, within half an hour or 45 minutes of, of bed, I try and either listen to music or a novel or something that I can I can relax to. 
And it's, you can't expect to go from this extraordinary state of wakefulness to this other extraordinary state of, of sleep instantly. I, I, I guess that I've likened it to um, a bit like going through the gears uh, when you're driving. Um, you can't go from, from first gear into reverse immediately. You have to go through the gears, otherwise you'll destroy the engine. And it's very much you know, analogous to that. First gear is great for, for accelerating away, but it's, it's disastrous if you want to get into the sleeping state. So um, think about that transition. And if you wake up, then it's not necessarily the end of sleep. Stay calm, keep the lights low, um, and do something relaxing for half an hour. You almost certainly will feel tired again, and then, then go back to bed. Don't think, oh my God, that's it. I finished, you know, I must have started doing social media and doing... So, can I interrupt you there? Sorry, Russell. What, what, what would you say are the relaxing things that you can do? Because you sometimes hear people saying, if you wake up, you should get up. Yeah. Um, so, so in terms of relaxing things, that's very much, you know, up, up to you. Um, and I think it's, it should always be somewhat different from the thing that's your major preoccupation at the time. So, you know, if you're studying for an exam, then it shouldn't be to try and, and look at that chapter one more time or that. Or that. It should be something that you enjoy. Um, and, and actually, you know, that's the, that's the great dilemma, I think, that many teenagers um, face at the moment because they're running as fast as they possibly can to stay where they are because they're expected to do more and more and more. And there's no time to wind down or relax or to, to, to sort of let their brain free run in, in a slightly different domain. And I think that's a huge problem that you know to face at the moment. They're expected so much. And part of that expectation is, is from parents or teachers. But a lot of it, of course, is self-generated as well. And it's learning to realize that actually many of the anxieties that we experience are to some extent self-imposed. I just I think it's worth pointing out that I never relax before going to sleep by reading a scientific paper either. So, uh, <laughs> but I like the idea that you, you you do something that's not connected to work or not you know whether you're a student uh, revising for exams or prep or or you're a teacher or you're somebody who's in business, but to just really just allow your brain to to sort of have comfort and and relax and I mean I often play Sudoku actually, which seems a bizarre thing for English teachers to do before they go to sleep, but it does wind me down. Yeah, I think that's the key thing. You identify what works for you. And, and you know, experts saying you must do this and you must do that, that never works. Um, and, it's, and, it's, and it's understanding the importance of sleep and then defending it by whatever means you find works. I'm interested in the whole idea of mental health and well-being, and you've, you've alluded to that already. I guess one of my questions is what comes first, because they seem to be inextricably linked. If you're sleeping badly, does that lead to mental health problems? Or if you've got mental health problems, does that lead to poor sleep? We, we published a paper a few years ago trying to conceptualise why you always get that incredible relationship between mental health uh, problems and, and sleep disruption. And we conceived it very simply, which is that at the heart of it, the neural circuits in the brain that give rise to normal sleep and those that give rise to mental health overlap. They're, they're using common uh, brain pathways, neurotransmitter systems. So if there's a, a change in one of those neurotransmitter systems that predispose you to mental health issues, then it's almost certainly gonna have an impact upon the sleep systems at some level. And we and others have shown that there is a mechanistic overlap. Genes that are changed in sleep-wake disruption also impact upon mental health. So we've got that clear, 
overlap. So there will be a genetic predisposition. However, the key thing, and you've already alluded to this, is that the poor sleep can exacerbate the mental health and the mental health can exacerbate the poor sleep. Um, and so what you can do is think of sleep consolidation as a therapeutic target. And what we did a few years ago, led by Dan Freeman in psychiatry here in Oxford, was to partially consolidate sleep in individuals showing hallucinatory experiences and paranoia. And what was so exciting is that a reduction in the sleep problems reduced the severity of paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. So it's not as though you can't do anything, you can target sleep. And it was, it's now being recognized in psychiatry as one of the ways in which we can, uh, uh, we can address mental health issues, prioritizing sleep. And of course, poor sleep is associated with cognitive impairment, with um, metabolic abnormalities, obesity, uh, paranoia, you know, all those sorts of problems. And so some of the uh, other health problems that you get with mental health could well be as a product of the disturbed sleep rather than the mental health itself. So I think by thinking of it in that very simple model, we, we can deal with it to some extent. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by the, by reading about the cognitive ability because you often get, you know, students who pull all-nighters before the exam and all the rest of it. And all the evidence is now saying that actually that's probably the worst thing you can do, isn't it? That actually a good night's sleep before an exam is probably the number one thing you should should focus on. Memory consolidation is 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 absolutely critical whilst we sleep. I mean, it's enhanced hugely, but as I said, it's not all, it's not just that, it's problem solving. There's beautiful studies that came out of Germany a few years ago where people were asked to perform a cognitive task, either with sleep or without sleep. And those that got the sleep, their, their problem solving ability in the group was 70%, whereas those that didn't have sleep, it dropped to, I think, less than 20%. I mean, that's just a brilliant illustration of problem solving abilities. That's a great message for young people, isn't it, when they're struggling to... You know, they, they feel like they've got to keep up the academic rigors, the stresses of all of that. But actually, you know, to be able to say, put in front of them evidence like that and say, look, in terms of your memory, in terms of your creativity, in terms of your problem solving, sleep is one of the defining features of, of, of helping you in those areas. And one of the other lovely bits of data that's come up fairly recently has shown that the tiredness state of the brain reflects the sort of things that you remember or not. So tired brains remember the negative experiences that you have, but forget the positive ones. So tired people have what's called a negative salience. They, they remember the world as a result of the negative impacts it's had upon them rather than the positive. And of course, that can hugely influence one's, one's mental health status. That's interesting. Can I ask um, about somebody who's sleeping not very well, and often the temptation is a sleeping pill or a night owl or you know, something like that, or having a whiskey before they go to bed, sort of what aids are acceptable, what aids really aren't acceptable? Yeah, I think the first the first, first point should be to try and change behaviour, the sorts of things that we've, we've talked about, and I'm very happy to send some guidelines. I, I wrote a paper last year about do's and don'ts in this regard that you might want to think about. Um, but the, the really important thing about sleeping tablets and alcohol is that they act as sedatives they don't provide a biological replacement for sleep. And in fact, it's very clear with alcohol and some sedatives that you actually impede memory consolidation and the processing of information. So it makes the situation worse. So you're sedating yourself, but you're not allowing all the biology of sleep to take place. And the danger with sedation is that you wake up feeling unrefreshed. 
and therefore you then crave caffeine um, and other sugar-rich, you know, beverages. And, and if, the, if the day is then fueled with caffeine, caffeine lasts in the body for a very long time. So you get to 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night and you're completely wired. So what do you do? Then the tendency is to take more sedatives like alcohol or, or, or sleeping tablets. And of course, you can get locked into that stimulant caffeine sedative feedback loop. And you've got a break from that. Um, so it's again, all those, 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 those tips, um, making the bedroom a, a sort of a place for sleep. D dark curtains, very important. Um, light regulation, so minimize light exposure before you go to bed, not bright lights. And the cooler room was something else I think you said in your TED talk. Well, that's very interesting because the, the many, many bedrooms are actually too warm for good sleep. Uh, part of the biology behind that is that sleep initiation involves a drop in core body temperature, a little drop. And if you prevent that, it's more difficult to get off to sleep. And so overheated bedrooms, you know, very thick duvets, radiators and all that st stuff on can actually um, uh, harm your ability to get to sleep. So slightly cool, but not cold. I, do, I wonder, um, for some people, I, mean, I think uh, more and more people are becoming more, sort of what I would describe as evangelistic about sleep, perhaps than ever before. And so I think uh, certainly in, in terms of people that I teach and people that I know, there's a greater awareness of the importance of sleep. But for those people who are not sleeping very well, in a sense, that can perpetrate a kind of greater anxiety. And I wondered, you know, how you would advise somebody in that situation, somebody who really, really is bought, you know, buys into the idea of getting good sleep, but is struggling to get it. That can almost be a little vicious circle in itself, can't it? Yeah, I, in our studies, it looks as though 20 to 25 percent of young people are suffering levels of sleep disruption that would be bordering on the clinical. But what we've been able to show as a result of the educational interventions that we've developed um, is that we can actually improve sleep in that 20, 25% of kids who are really suffering. So education alone can be very valuable. One area which I think is quite interesting is the use of sleep apps. And I, I get quite irritated with these because they claim to tell you things that simply, slightly careful here, but, but they can be deeply misleading. Um, so what they're good for is telling you roughly when you went to bed and roughly when you got up. And, and, and so your sleep duration and sleep timing. When they start to tell you you had lots of slow wave sleep or you had lots of REM sleep or, or you had a good night of sleep, they can be very, very misleading in this regard, and it can induce anxiety. One person came up to me after a public talk and said, um, I, don't, I, I don't believe in slow wave sleep. And I said, okay, why is that? And he said, well, my app is, is telling me I'm not getting any. Um, and, and I said, okay, well, you know, these apps really don't work very well. And furthermore, we're not absolutely clear what slow wave sleep delivers. So there's lots of reasons for not getting anxious about it. One person even told me that they were so worried they weren't getting enough slow wave sleep, they set their alarm for 4 a.m. to wake themselves up to check how much slow wave sleep they had got or reported to have got from their app. So, so the apps can be really misleading. I mean, in theory, they should work in the same way that if you want to lose weight, you change your behavior, you weigh yourself in the morning, you see a weight loss, and that reinforces the change in behavior. So if you want longer sleep and more stable sleep, then they're great for that. But ignore at the moment um, all of the other stuff.
from them. And indeed, it's worth bearing in mind that the um, National Sleep Foundation, of which I'm a, a member, has not endorsed any of the commercially available sleep apps. So treat them with deep suspicion. So I'm hearing kind of routine is good, cool is good, uh, changing your behavior, winding down, and that's in terms of light, uh, switching off all your, you know, kind of technology and actually probably keeping it out of the bedroom altogether, finding stuff that works for you. Can we just talk a little bit specifically about teenagers? Uh, I'm right, am I right in saying they need more sleep anyway? Yeah, I mean, Mary Cuskerton in the States has suggested that on average, and it very much is an average, that nine hours sleep is optimal for teenagers. Now, there will be some that can get away with less and some that might even need more. Um, and and uh, so it, 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 it's, a, it's a guideline. Um, and again, you need to work out what, what's, what's best for you. The, the biology of, of, of sleep changes. So from about the age of 10, there's a tendency to want to go to bed later and later and later until you're in your late teens, early 20s. And then from there, you move to a more morning type. So the time you're in your late 50s, early 60s, you're getting up and going to bed on average two hours earlier than you would have done when you were in your late teens, early 20s. So asking a teenager to get up at seven o'clock in the morning is like asking a 55-year-old to get up at, 50, uh, at five o'clock in the morning. So, so there is a change in the biology. We tend to be later in our late teens and, 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 and early 20s. So it's, it's, again, not laziness. It's a change in the biology. But, but it, it does, there are things you can do about that. The key thing is that as we published a paper a few years ago, and, and it involves the, the role of light. Morning light advances the clock, makes you get up earlier, whereas evening light delays the clock, makes you get up later. And we found that in teenagers who were really late, they weren't getting the morning light, making them get up earlier, but they were getting lots of evening light, making them get up later. So if you are struggling because you're a late type, then set the alarm, have a light box or get outside and get that early morning light, which will shove the clock forward in time so you'll be more of a morning person. So again, it's not as though there's nothing you can do about it. It's brutal and it'll be tricky for a week or so, but after that, you will naturally tend to wake up earlier and then get that morning light. That's what's so important for so many uh, young people. And of course, that's the problem of oversleeping at the weekends. You miss the morning light completely, you get the evening light, and therefore you're shifting the clock to a later time. So would you recommend the light boxes on the back of that? Because that's... Um... Yeah, I think it's something, and in fact, some, some friends <laughs> who, whose son went off to university um, just uh, a few years ago, they said, you know, what's the best light box we can get? And, and in fact, um, there are some very good light boxes now, and they produce a lot of light, um, and they can be linked to an alarm clock. So you can get a sort of a, a 30 minute increase in light intensity, which is really good for waking you up in the morning. And the data suggests that they really do work. I mean, not for everybody, but for a, for a significant subset, it may be what works for you. And then stick to it. I have to say, I've got one. So, and it definitely works in waking me up in the morning. It's a much softer way to being woken up as well than some horrible alarm clock going off. Just, uh, I was going to ask on the back of that, you know, because I'm obviously a teacher as well as a parent. I mean, given all that you've just said, are we as schools, and I know some schools have looked into this, are we doing our pupils a, a massive disservice as teenagers to sort of get them in school at 8.15 and cracking there? And is there, is there some merit to actually thinking about pushing a school day later? 
Most of the studies have come from the states in this regard, where they've delayed the start of the school time um, from something like 7.30 in the morning to about half past eight. Um, most of our, our young people will start probably 10 to 9, 9 o'clock. And so they're already starting later than, than their counterparts in the States. And so my first sort of what we've tried to introduce, and you know, it's incredibly, has been very difficult. We set up all these programs, um, you know, to develop this, went into schools, we showed the efficacy, and then we wanted some uh, funding to, to, to sort of roll it out across the UK. And then the funding, funding bodies, they just didn't. And, and so it's, it's really bizarre to me because here are educational tools that have been shown to work. And that's what we should be introducing into our every classroom. Um, and it's not just during the teenage years, but understanding the importance of sleep and how we control our sleep as we progress through life um, into the, the later years as, 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 as um, uh, you know, elderly individuals is still very valuable because there's sleep problems at every stage of the game, whether you're a new parent um, or whether you are um, post-retirement. Yeah, and it strikes me that, you know, we're talking to parents primarily here that actually them getting a good night's sleep is going to make them a much better parent. <laughs> well, well, absolutely, yeah. And their modelling of, of, a, of, a, of a good way of sleeping, not, you know, of, of, of themselves is also a huge help, isn't it, to their child? But it's, it's so important because so many aspects of our behaviour, our empathy, our ability to pick up the social signals from other people is affected by sleep loss. Our impulsivity, you know, doing stupid and unreflective things is, is increased with poor sleep. So all the things that make us this special creature, this extraordinary creature with all this potential um, uh, and so much ability is being harmed because we're not taking sleep seriously. My, my grandfather was a confirmed insomniac. Um, so, you know, he would sort of almost celebrate the fact that he never slept. But he would also say that when he wasn't asleep, he would lie very still. And he felt that he was actually benefiting from, you know, a lot of rest. And actually he could get by. And so when people don't sleep, again, the argument about, you know, getting up and going to do something... Is there a sense that if you just lie still, um, you do benefit to an extent? Yeah, and, and one of the things that, I mean, when, when I first heard of mindfulness and, and those sorts of behaviours, I, I, I thought of it as, as deep, with deep suspicion. You know, I'm, I'm interested in mechanisms and how we can sort of change things mechanistically. And it, and it just looked a bit like crystal uh, waving to me. But actually, mindfulness is a, has turned out to be an extremely powerful thing because what you're doing is you're training your brain how to relax. And that has, you know, the knock-on consequences. And there's some evidence that some of the processes that go on during sleep can go on to a certain extent during deep relaxation states. So I wouldn't dismiss relaxation or mindfulness. And indeed, mindfulness before one goes to sleep can be very useful in, in easing that transition. So because it's all about winding down um, and, and, and sort of getting to a calmer place, which is what's a sleep. Some, some person I know always used to keep a pad by the side of their bed and every time they woke and they were worried something in the night they used to write it on the pad and it was a way of kind of you know making sure you can pick it up in the morning yeah I, and again that's it, it, it that's what works for you but I mean you're you're sort of going into sort of dreams um, and a lot of people you know um, particularly during this time of COVID who've had extended sleep because they now don't have to spend one or two hours commuting they're waking up naturally 
and we wake up naturally from REM sleep. And REM sleep is when we have our most vivid um, dreams. Uh, and so the people are saying, you know, I'm remembering more dreams. But some of those dreams have sort of kind of an unpleasant context. And it's, it's very interesting because what we think dreams are doing, and nobody really knows, despite what you may hear, is that they seem to reflect our anxiety status. So there was a very interesting study done after the Twin Towers were destroyed in, in, in New York and people monitored dreams. When people weren't dreaming about planes going into skyscrapers, they were dreaming about being mugged or overwhelmed by a tsunami. And again, it was the brain trying to make sense of their emotional status, doing what the brain does. Um, and so again, one shouldn't be worried about these sorts of distressing dreams, because again, it's the brain trying to make sense of a complicated world in which we live. But we tend to remember them more now because we're waking up um, you know, from REM sleep. Uh, but, but I really don't think it's anything to worry for, worry for. If it becomes deeply troubling, then, then, then there's some things you can do about it. And again, cognitive behavioral therapy can actually help you in that regard. That's really interesting. Is there, is there a sense then, and of course, as you said, you don't really know, that, that dreaming is in a way helping us process some of our excess or hidden kind of emotional state? I think that's right. And certainly after trauma, whether it be the loss of a family member, I mean, my mother died before before Christmas. And so some of the dreams I've been experiencing have not involved her directly, but I've woken, you know, experiencing some strange stuff. And that's clearly me trying to process, you know, what's been going on over the past couple of months. Yeah. And and, and people, I think, will all, all you know, find that that, you know, in lots of different stressful circumstances, not least exams. Good. Well, that's been absolutely fascinating, Russell. Thank you so much. Um, there's, I don't think I've ever, we've done a podcast, which has felt so dense with great stuff. And I've written a whole pile of notes myself here. And, and, and uh, I really appreciate you bringing your expertise, but also the way you can articulate it for the likes of James and I, and, and therefore everybody else. Yeah, exactly. That's the gift. Well done. Thank you very much. Not at all. It's been an absolute delight as always. Thanks, thanks again, the Jameses. listening to Talking Teenagers. Music has been by Rue Paynes. Editing by George Purvis and James Certin. For more information about I Can and I Am Charity, who provide presentations and resources and help build self-confidence in young people, visit their website at icanandiam.com. Be your soul.